This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good morning, everyone. I'm Mary Walshock from UC San Diego, Elizabeth Keffer's partner in crime, and we're delighted that you're with us for the morning and through lunch uh, of the Atlantic Meets the Pacific. It's always important to thank our supporters and underwriters, and uh, I want to echo what Elizabeth has been saying consistently through the sessions. Without Merrill Lynch and Life Technologies and Qualcomm, and United Health, and for those of you who are San Diegans, the Benbow Foundation, we couldn't have put uh, this uh, together. And we're delighted with the friendships that are growing with these underwriters and hope we'll continue to collaborate in the years ahead. Uh, we have a really interesting morning. It uh, begins with a conversation between Larry Smarr and Mark Bowden. So thank you again for being with us and enjoy the morning. Well, thanks. I guess we'd uh, launch in. I, I'm Mark Bowden. This is Larry Smarr. Um, I have to say that the task of interviewing Larry, which I enjoyed uh, in researching a piece last year for The Atlantic called uh, The Measured Man, is one of the easiest jobs in the world because uh, basically you just sort of turn yourself over to Larry, as you'll see. Uh, you know, Larry is uh, one of the pioneers of uh, what has been called the quantified life and is um, sort of leading the charge into the uh, future in terms of uh, uh, using uh, computers and, and telecommunications to uh, monitor his own body uh, and understand it better. And toward that end, actually, as I Larry is so easy to interview. He, he actually brought props uh, this morning. So I, I thought we'd just start by by asking Larry to show us what he's what he's got here, and then we'll backtrack into what he's doing with them all. Right. Well, I, I got started in this when I came to La Jolla from the Midwest in 2000, and I looked a lot different than I do now. I was like 25 pounds overweight. I didn't exercise. I didn't think about the food that I put in my mouth and what the consequences of that would be. Um, and so I really got with the program, but I found pretty quickly that it's hard to do that if you're not measuring the effect it's having on your body, so you have the biofeedback to know if you're doing the right things or not. So uh, I had a body media, which goes on your arm and measures your steps and caloric burn for a year. I wore 24-7. This is a Fitbit. How many people have a Fitbit? Let's exhibit our Fitbits. Yes. Quite a few, okay. And, and so that measures your steps, caloric burn, and so forth. And what we found there is 
just having one of these so you know how many steps you're doing when you see how pathetic it is. This, without anybody having to lecture you at all, you're typically double or triple that uh, just by changing your behavior and changing your routine uh, daily. So uh, I lost 25 pounds, I, I gained double or tripled my strength in, in the first five years, but then I began to realize that one of, the most other, one of the most important things besides that was sleep. And so I started wearing a Zio, which is a little sensor like this that you wear overnight. Um, and I've worn for like the last 500 nights. Um, and it measures every 30 seconds the state of your sleep, whether it's light, deep sleep, which is very restorative, your body is physically restoring itself, or REM, which is the rapid eye movement uh, dream sleep. And that's where your brain sorts out an awful lot of the things that go on uh, during the day that you really couldn't get to, uh, and you know, does garbage collection and stuff like that that's really important to your health. Uh, I used to get like six hours of sleep a night, but actually if you look in the medical literature, uh, if you get below six hours of sleep a night, your chance of stroke goes up by five or six times. And there's all kinds of other health consequences. So the idea of uh, measuring yourself to improve your health uh, was one of the things that really changed my life. The other is preventive medicine. And, And we had Eric Topol and Don Jones from Qualcomm yesterday talking about all the new technologies that make that possible. Um... And Mark insisted that I actually show you that I'm currently wearing, I'll just show you one of them, three uh, uh, electrocardiogram electrodes that are connected to this sort of device here with a battery at it, which is then Bluetooth connected to (laughs) my sort of cell phone-like device here, which is then connected to the internet over cellular internet and to a service called CardioNet, uh, that works with Qualcomm that um, uh, monitors for any irregularities, arrhythmia or atrial fibrillation, things like that, uh, which I had an indication I might have, but I don't know. So the only way to do it is to capture your heartbeat, every heartbeat for um, anywhere from one to four weeks, um, uh, day and night. And um, so these are the new kinds of technologies that if you can catch something like that really early, uh, this may seem like it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but compared to having a heart attack? <laughs> oh, if you have to, one more thing, you have to show people what that is, Larry. Well, so as I got into this, and, and that's what a lot of Mark's story was about, um, I gradually, in the last five years, uh, as I dove, dove deeper into things like doing 100 different variables in my blood and then beginning to take stool measurements which are rich with information about your immune system your largest immune organ is your colon has most of the immune cells in your body Uh, i actually found out and self-diagnosed myself with having crohn's disease late onset crohn's which is a inflammatory bowel disease an autoimmune disease where because of a dysbiosis in your gut microbes and a genetic predisposition, which I could test by doing 23andMe. We heard about last night uh, with the National uh, Genographics Group talking about that. Um, I did have a genetic predisposition to uh, pro-inflammation, and I was able to show that I did have this dysbiosis. And so I got an MRI, and as I always do, when I, as Eric would say, when you go to the doctor, make sure that you ask for your data. 
Uh, and so I said, give me my data for my MRI, and they'll cut you a little CD, and then we took it back and put it into our interactive 3D visualization, which a number you saw on the tour yesterday to CalIT2, uh, where our staff does all of this work. Uh, but then I said, well, gee, don't we have some 3D printers? Remember last night, Craig Venner talking about 3D printers? Um, and I said, well, why don't we print my colon? And, and so this is the descending part of the colon. I've got this, this sort of funky little, like the U-tube underneath your sink, you know? Um, each of us have little strange things. And then, and then this uh, part here, which is the inflamed part, which now that I know what it looks like and I know the size of it, I can actually feel. And uh, that's inflamed by the autoimmune. The white blood cells are actually going into the cell wall, into the wall here, and... This is, should be about 3 millimeters thick. It's about 15 millimeters thick, about five times inflamed. Um, but once you have that and you really understand the state of your body, then you're in a much better position to imagine what therapy, whether it's medical or diet or probiotics or whatever, you're not flying blind. And you're a participant with your doctor. You're a, a collaborator with your doctor and with the medical literature. Mm-hmm. So Larry's story is, uh, his personal story is actually part of a much larger story about the impact computers and supercomputers are having on modern life. And as he has <coughs> explained to me so well, you know, one of the, uh, the, you know, the major contribution that supercomputers make is it enables us to understand systems of greater and greater complexity. And uh, years ago, Larry's has been involved with the uh, development of the internet and uh, computers his whole career. Um, he was telling me how years ago in studying um, ecosystems, he uh, built a coral reef in a tank at his home. Tell, tell, tell me the story of the uh, coral reef. Larry. Well, as supercomputers, I was the founding director of the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, the uh, sister center to the San Diego Supercomputer Center here that Sid Karen ran uh, and from 85 till 2000. And one of the things, you know, we, we, we tried to encourage lots of new disciplines to use uh, large amounts of data and computing, and so ecological modeling became a big deal. And I was sort of a little suspicious of this, and I wanted, you know, how well can we do this? Uh, and coral reefs were a sort of hobby of mine. I did a lot of snorkeling uh, around the world to, to study coral reefs. They're like the richest diversity of life on the planet other than um, the rainforest on land. Um, and so I wondered, well, how sensitive are these things? So I gradually built up to a 120-gallon coral reef in my living room. Um, and uh, with about, uh, I collected phyla, which are the sort of top-level Life So vertebra is everything with a backbone. So all the fishes were just like one phyla. And then shrimp were a different thing, and starfish were a different thing, and then all kinds of coral and uh, little invertebrates and so forth. Um, and what was amazing to me is I had, you know, there was all these things you had to do. You, you, the light was incredibly intense. You had to get to mimic the sun. The, you had reverse osmosis uh, units to get the pure water so that you didn't have all the stuff that's in, you know, city water. <laughs> Um, but I found that still my curls, after a little while, would sort of curl up and, and, and pull off and die from the rock. And I said, why? 
and I did a little research on it, and it turned out that there's a protein that holds the coral to the um, rock called, that, that has a big, a big atom of molyb molybdenum. And it's like the iron atom in hemoglobin that you know, carries your oxygen in your blood. <clears throat> and so I found that if I put something like five drops of molybdenum and 120 gallons, it solved the problem. And so that gave me a sense of the sensitivity that these complex interactive systems have. And that, as I began to study my own body as, you know, an aquarium, um, you know, it's transparent, as I showed you. You can fly in my body. There's, if you want to look on the web, there's videos of me giving tours of the inside of my body. <laughs> uh, but the biochemical uh, cycles in your body that all influence each other, all of the things that your genes activate. Um, you again see these kind of sensitivities, and that's one reason, for instance, I monitor so many different uh, elements or compounds in, in my blood, and then if I'm low on them, then I'll supplement them or change my diet to bring them back up to what's uh, a good level. Um, and you are that sensitive. I mean, that's, that's one reason why having such a broad, diverse diet is so important because there are many of these micronutrients that if you don't have, it, it will lead to problems with your health. Right. I love the parallel with, uh, you know, uh, Larry taking a personal interest in coral reef and how that related then to the larger issue of, you know, environmental or ecological um, uh, modeling. Uh, and that's very similar to what you're doing with your own body uh, at your institute. Uh, tell us what you think, where you think these uh, efforts that you're making with yourself lead for, you know, people 10 years from now or whatever? So sometimes people are critical of what is called an N equal one, uh, uh, one person uh, experiment. But here's the thing. When I talk to senior doctors, what I find is that, that a, the more forward-looking of them understand that an N equal one um, allows you to go into vastly more detail on how these subsystems are working and interfering facing with each other in a body than you would ever get in, say, a clinical trial of a 1,000 people, which are very superficial per person. And what they do is they're hypothesis generators. So that once you get this kind of detailed thing, like in my case, I'm now looking at the ecology of the microbe in the gut and how that compares with healthier people that have, say, Crohn's disease, um, uh, that forms a hypothesis, well, what if we then expanded this, and that's what we're doing now between Cal IT2 and the School of Medicine here at UCSD, is we're going to take me as an N of one, I'm sort of suggesting questions, then we put, say, a dozen more people around me and measure, you know, not the comprehensive measurements, but the specific measurements that my experiment has indicated would be important, and say, getting the genetic predisposition, measuring the... Uh, uh, microbes, uh, measuring some of the biomarkers, uh, but now spreading it out to say a, eventually a double-blind uh, clinical trial, and then that would verify that this is a useful for uh, a new form of uh, clinical uh, care. And that's really the way this stuff goes. It's just that normally it comes from some anonymous person that some researcher is looking at rather than 
looking at yourself. But more and more, because of the revolution that you know Eric Topol talks about uh, in the consumer electronic world, we all are going to begin to have this level of knowledge about ourselves. And so it's inevitable that the citizens are going to take a much more active role in the future in healthcare. One of the things that you've learned in investigating the um, uh, early onset Crohn's disease is how almost infinitely complex the um, uh, microbial life inside your own GI tract is and how uh, mysterious it is still, you know, what are, how it impacts your health and the functioning of your body. Do you find, Larry, that as you probe more and more and more that you just open up new and greater levels of complexity? Or do you reach a point at which you can say, okay, I've got the whole system mapped? Well, you know, think about your car. Um, you know, if none of us, well, I wouldn't say none of us, but very few of us actually understand in detail how the electrical subsystem works, how the uh, gasoline goes in, gets mixed with the air, you know, the chemical reactions, the flame dynamics that happen inside the pistons, the catalytic converters, the brake systems, particularly all the ones that have, you know, you've got like a hundred microprocessors, sensor actuators in your car. How does all of that software, there's millions, 10 million, what, lines of code, maybe 50 million lines of code in your car, how does all that software work? But on the other hand, we could sit here and on on the blackboard sketch out a block diagram of each of those subsystems, right? And then you could take one of those subsystems and you could say, you know, well, here's how the piston and the spark plug and the gas and the air work and so forth. So you think logically in terms of these structures. Well, it's the same thing with the body. Yes, there, I've got 25 billion bases that I now know uh, of the DNA of my microbes, thanks to Craig Venner's institute that sequenced the data. Um, but I'm now converting that to an ecology of who are the dominant microbes and why are they there and what services they're providing. And then I can go up to the immune system and I can say, well, how do they interact with the immune system? For instance, in babies, the training set for your new immune system, which is a learning system, it's the training set because the immune system has to sort out friend from foe. It has to know that these hundred species of microbes that are in your gut, for instance, or the ones that are on your skin or in your mouth, are okay to be there as opposed to, say, a tuberculosis or some other uh, bacteria or virus that comes in that needs to be attacked. Well, it trains up your immune system. Your immune system is a learning system. And, and so that interaction at this sort of block-level diagram, I think you, know, you can write down on a napkin and explain to somebody. And yes, if you want to probe down into detail, I mean, it's like you can go down many, many layers of, in, of, of detail. Um, but there is a conceptual level at which this all makes sense and which the interactions between these things indicate that if there's something wrong with this, it's going to affect this, and that's going to lead to something wrong here, and before long, you've got a disease. Right. Is it desirable 
to know this much about yourself? I mean, one of, one of the things that uh, I think is probably true uh, is that if you start looking very, very carefully at your body and how all the various systems work, that you're going to eventually find, as you did, something that's not working right. Uh, none of us are perfect, so you're going to find that. And doesn't that lead to anxiety, to seeking out treatment? Treatment is something that has often um, uh, side effects that uh, are, are undesirable. Uh, as sometimes treatment can do more harm than good. So, I mean, isn't there a chance that by knowing this much about ourselves, we're sort of leading ourselves into trouble? Well, what, what's our car do you drive? I drive a uh, Honda, uh, some kind of Honda. <laughs> right. So you don't even know what kind of Honda, but... <laughs> But what do you do? You take it into the service place every 10 or 20,000 miles. And you know what they do? They go into more detail than I'm doing on every subsystem that might have a problem, read it out, and compare it across the network of all Honda whatevers that are of that year, and uh, compare them. And then if you're in the middle of the bell curve, then it's fine. If you're beginning to somehow get off on the spark plug firing or anything else, they go in, make a change, and you know what? You write back out, it's just fine. So knowing enough, you may not have to know enough, mm -hmm. but you're hiring somebody who knows enough right. that they can do preventive maintenance so that when that thing is at 150,000 miles, a modern car, it roughly runs as well as the day you bought it. Now think about that. It's not aging. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's a good thing, Mark, that you have people that you have money to hire that know something uh, in detail. And about it's not just a scam complex... to get me to replace a oil filter. Well, it might be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that uh, there's going to be a little bit of that. But if you compare what it, that oil filter cost having to pull the whole engine out because you didn't care to know enough about it that you burned out all the rings in your pistons uh, then you know I'd say that's a pretty good investment now there's also the chance that you're gonna find out things that you don't want to know I don't parse that very well that sentence <laughs> well if you had an incurable disease would you be happier knowing absolutely I do have one well, but the one that's going to, say, kill you in a few years? We're all going to leave, you know, one way or the other. It's just a question of timing. No, I mean, absolutely. If I knew that I had a very high chance of developing Alzheimer's or having a heart attack or, you know, other things, and I dug into it and I really believed that that was the likely outcome, I would think about what I wanted to get done who I wanted to be with. I mean, I'd spend more time with my granddaughter. You know, I mean, this is life. It ends with death. Yeah. It's not like a surprise to anybody, right, that you're all going to die. <laughs> no, there was a good letter uh, in response to the story to The Atlantic, which um, a doctor wrote um, saying that, how wonderful that people will have all this information and will be able to make good choices about exercise and diet and whatnot, but people aren't going to listen to it. People are going to do things that um, are s stupid. Uh, it doesn't matter that you're going to arm people with all this information. What, what do you say to that? 
Well, I'm old enough, I'll be 64 next week, that I remember President Kennedy challenging us to think about our bodies. And there was a book that came out from the Air Force on exercise and, and, and so forth, and that we had, if we were going to be competitive as a country, we needed to be competitive as individual people. And I started jogging. And I was, it was so early, in the early 60s, to be jogging through the neighborhood that the little kids would run after me and say, what's that man running through our neighborhood? And the parents would come out and say, I don't know, it must be criminal, getting away from the police. <laughs> Why else would you run? <laughs> so I think um, our nation is in a very dire situation caused by our people not taking personal responsibility for their bodies. And the obesity epidemic, which is in its fourth decade and is unrelenting, will bankrupt this country. Doesn't, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. There's just not enough money in the world. If we all took our cars and we just said, well, this $5 gallon per gas, you know, uh, I don't like that. I'm just going to use half water. It's cheaper, you know. What kind of car fleet would we have, you know? I mean, so people just think there's no relationship between what they put in their body, whether they exercise, any of these things that are related to why we have this unrelenting obesity epidemic. We didn't used to have one, you know? And, and so why this is one of the biggest public health emergencies in the history of the republic. And yet, are we treating it like that? And you keep hearing the deficit talks about, well, it's going to be health care that are going to bankrupt. Well, 70% or something of health care is chronic disease management. If we're all going to turn our bodies into chronically ill people that, that require vast amounts of medical care, then, yeah, we're done as a country. So I think there's going to be a revolution. I think there's going to be a pushback. It's starting here in La Jolla. We're, we're a centerpiece of this counter-revolution where you're seeing a lot of this health consciousness radiate out from places like La Jolla. And um, I think the change is well underway, but it's going to take decades. Hmm. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk for a minute about poop. <laughs> People don't respect their poop. <laughs> I guess I didn't understand it either. Um, look, a lot of people are squeamish at blood, but they also intellectually know that in blood is a window into the biochemistry of the body, and there are all kinds of biomarkers that are important for us to get at. Stool is the same thing. 40% by dry weight of stool is bacteria that were in your gut. You have five pounds of bacteria in your gut. You have ten times as many cells in your microbes as you have human cells. And that wonderful DNA that Craig was talking about last night, that has 1% of the genes in your body. 99% of the genes are in the microbes, and they're providing services to your body. 
And yet medicine up to this point has completely ignored it because it was almost impossible to measure because it costs too much to genetically sequence them and that's the only way you can tell the microbes apart from one another. But we've had a million-fold reduction in the cost of gene sequencing since Craig got his genome sequenced back in 2000. I mean, right now, you know, we've sequenced all mine. You can compare that with um, healthy people. You can figure out what's wrong with you. I mean, look, this is, in August, the cover of The Economist, not known as a biotech journal, right? Microbes maketh man. And, and they go on. This is the cover story, right? I don't know if the Atlantic's had one yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, they might get with it. So um, this is serious. I mean, why is The Economist covering this? Because they understand it will revolutionize healthcare. It, how can you be, it's like, in, I was a cosmologist for a long time, and we thought all the stars and the galaxies you could see we're like, you know, what made up the universe, and now we understand it's a few percent of the universe, and the dark matter and the dark energy make all the rest of it, and we didn't know they were there. Well, there was a time, think of, you know, I did my first cosmology course in 1968. Think of medicine as at that stage. And now we've discovered, the economist has discovered, right? I mean, this is like, the world has discovered this, the National Institutes of Health have put billions of dollars in the last few years into the human microbiome program to find out in a crash program what's there. It turns out it's intimately related to all autoimmune diseases. It has a lot to do with heart, renal failure. It has to do with even a lot of things to do with the brain. Um, and what have we done? We promiscuously uh, use antibiotics in the society. 80% of the antibiotics in America go into farm animals that are in these horrible conditions that either they need the antibiotics to keep the, you know, anyway, horrible conditions. You know, well, what is that? That's a Darwinian cesspool for breeding antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is, do you know that antibiotic-resistant bacteria that were picked up in hospitals killed 100,000 Americans last year? More than all automobile accidents, homicides, HIV and emphysema deaths put together, and it's increasing at a frightening rate. And we heard from Craig last night, the drug companies are shutting down. They're making new antibiotics. Hello, crisis. Okay, so we've got to understand, if you think about what that does, when you take a general broad-spectrum antibiotic to your microbiome, it's just like napalming the village to kill a few bad guys. And so it, and it takes a long time to get over that. So we're going to have to have a much more intelligent way of going after specific bacteria, like there's a virus that kills a specific bacteria. And so the idea of using targeted viruses instead of broad-spectrum antibiotics is one of the new tools in the toolkit that uh, is coming along. Now, the great thing about this is we are going to know all of this. And there are tons of researchers jumping into this field and understanding the relationships between this 99% and the 1%, you know, like your human part, that's the 1%, and the 99% of the microbes. Microbes rule. Okay, we're just along for the ride. We're the host. And so this is, it's, it's, I mean, what could be a more exciting time to be in? In five to ten years, you won't recognize medicine 
compared to what it is now. Because of the things that Eric Topol said, that Don Jones said about the whole wireless health, because of the whole genome revolution, because of the ability to have population-wide available uh, data, not just crazy people like me, um, and you'll have software apps on your smartphone that are you know, helping you make better decisions um, every moment of the day. Okay, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience in just a second. I'm going to ask one more and then uh, fire away. Uh, you described to me, Larry, just how information-rich a stool sample is, and you compared it to a computer, to a personal computer. Right. Could you... Well, it's sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation, but if you think about how many billion uh, microbes there are per gram of stool, and you think that each one of those has 1 to 10 million bases, then you end up with something like 500,000 terabytes per gram, which is a lot more than in your computer. Now, yes, there's a lot of redundancy in it, but it, there is so much information there and so you've got to just you've got to get a better attitude about your poo. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's got so much information in it that you're ignoring. I mean, just next time you look in the toilet, just think it's looking back at you and saying, "You dummy! You're <laughs> flushing this down the toilet. You're not taking it and freezing it in your refrigerator and sending it off and getting it measured. Well, good luck." <laughs> All right. With that, yeah, just, if anyone wants to weigh in, yes, yes, sir. Microphone. I'm kind of alternating between extreme optimism and extreme despair <laughs> in listening to all of the possibilities. But what occurs to me is we've got incredible innovation and new insight and a very archaic delivery and economic system around healthcare. Right. And are there immediate interventions or things that we can do from a policy level that will help the scientific discoveries take hold faster? Any disruptive technology finds such a stuck in its way. I mean, think of ATM and bank tellers, right? Um, but the good thing is that after the disruption, you notice they're still bank tellers, but they do higher level things. And you don't have to go to one to get to your money. In fact, 99% of the time you don't, right? But if you have something beyond just wanting your money, there is, in fact, a bank teller to talk to. So um, I think you're seeing a lot of doctors that are um, wanting to get out of the trap they're in with the um, business model of HMOs and other things that say, you know, the number of insurance bills per day is our bottom line. And so that means the less time you spend with each patient the, and, the, and make sure you bill them for something, uh, that no doctor wanted to be in that kind of rat race, I mean, when they went to medical school. So many of the doctors are doing things like going to concierge medicine or going to things where they can begin to do this kind of data rich. We have MD Revolution right here in town as a good example uh, of a set of doctors that are beginning to pull together nutrition, exercise, biomarkers. Um, and I think you'll see that. That's the way you always do. You know, there's, there's the early adopters. They're spotty. You know, they are often controversial. Uh, and then gradually that becomes more and more. There begin to be some policy changes and reforms that uh, make it 
more possible to do things, and then eventually it's just a flood. And then you get the tower record phenomenon. I mean, I couldn't believe there would ever be a time when there isn't a tower record store in which I can get CDs. <laughs> you know, and then Sean Parker makes Napster and file sharing, and all the world starts to disintegrate, and then a genius like Steve Jobs comes along and invents iTunes, and the whole world is upside down, and all the tower record stores are gone before you can hardly turn around. So these things can go very fast. And given the demand for our own health, every one of us cares about this. Not every one of us cares about CDs. So I think this thing could go a lot faster than people are thinking. And it, it will be driven by you, not the doctors. It'll be driven by the consumers that can get access to this, realize that they can do things that otherwise wouldn't be able to do, um, and demand, that, as Eric said uh, yesterday, that they get a different form of medical care. Hi, uh, Greg Jabin from uh, Del Mar, just up the road. A very interesting discussion. I enjoyed it. Um, you mentioned that you've been wearing something to monitor your sleep for the last 500 days. And I was just wondering if you can go into that a little bit more about what did you learn about your sleep and did you find any ways of getting better and deeper sleep in that time? Absolutely. So many of these things like Fitbit, uh, Body Media, Zio. So this is a Z-E-O, Zio. You go to Amazon, wherever, and it's, I don't know, one or two hundred dollars uh, the one I like, well, it depends on which one. The one I like is the one that links to your smartphone. So you just download an app. Um, you, you know, like I'm going to Chicago tomorrow to keynote an international conference. I take this along, but I don't need to take my, my bedside Zio. I just take my smartphone. I have an app on it. It Bluetooths to the smartphone, and then it, it's a sensor. It's just reading out my brain, you know, into the, my smartphone. Um, then what you'll notice is over time there's a pattern to your sleep. And every one of us has a different pattern. But when your deep sleep happens, when your REM, how often you're waking up, how long it does it take you to get back to sleep, all of that stuff. So once you see it and you're averaging, you know, you get a few weeks of this and you can begin to sort of average over and get a pattern, then on the website is um, surveys about what are your activities or how much coffee are you drinking a day, how much wine do you have at night? When do you exercise? Do you work till you go to sleep? How quickly do you get up? You know, those are all things you can change. And I've changed from probably six hours of sleep to August I had eight hours and 39 minutes average sleep a night. Sleep, not just lying down. Tell me about the Fitbit and how do you get it and uh, where do you have to get it? processed, etc. It's very simple. This is a three-dimensional accelerometer. You go to Amazon or wherever and you put in F-I-T-B-I-T, Fitbit, one word, um, and you buy it for like $99. And um, so it, uh, you know, it's early in the day. I've uh, gone 1,367 steps. Uh, that's 0.65 miles, uh, 829 calories aerobically burned and one staircase. Um, and so what I do is you just put in a little thing like this that plugs into your USB port on your computer. It uploads to the cloud. It plots all this stuff for you. And then it has help about, you know, ideas about how to increase the number of steps or the amount that's aerobic. Uh, 
and then you can share it. And there's, as you can see, already a wide community of people. So like in my office, we have like a dozen of our Cal IT2 staff, and we have a weekly competition. I always lose. Uh, I mean, my assistants, uh, young women, and I won't tell you what their ages are, but they're younger quite a bit than I am. But uh, I average, oh, I don't know, 50, 60,000 steps, and, and they do 110 or 120,000 steps uh, uh, a week, which, um, if you think about it, that's uh, 120,000 steps is 60 miles. No, it's not waterproof. That's one of the problems with a lot of the tech, but I'm sure in the next year or two you're going to start seeing waterproof versions of these things. And, you know, it, it, I'm not trying to sell. I don't have any stock in Fitbit. Uh, but, you know, there's Body Media. There's not just the Zio. There's uh, for sleep. There's something called Lark. Uh, there's a Nike Fuel Band. You'll see. How many has a Nike Fuel Band? Yeah, show them your Nike Fuel Band. <laughs> okay, so it doesn't... It, I, I can guarantee you, it does not matter which of these products you get. What matters is that you start being aware of the state of your body. You start quantitatively knowing what you're doing during the day, and once you are aware, you will change to make yourself better. Yes, sir. Thank you. My name is Joe Weiss. I'm a physician. I'm actually a gastroenterologist. So, Thank Larry, you. I do respect your poop, and I respect you even more. In fact, when you're flying to Chicago, I want to make sure I'm not in the line behind you, a TSA, <laughs> as you're going through all the devices. Just a comment and a question. Yeah. I'm excited about the advances, and I think what many people are concerned about is information overload. You've got sure. lots of devices on, lots of information gathered, but I just want your comment, and I hope you'll agree with me, that you're a pioneer, and as the information comes in and is collated and analyzed, in the future, we're going to be able to say, we need to look for these markers, these bacteria, these... Um, so it's not everyone's going to have to wear a half a dozen devices. We're really going to have it all refined, and it's thanks to people like you and the other pioneers in the area. The other thought I would ask you to comment on is a lot of diseases are thought to be chronic diseases, and they've been around for a long time. Uh, somebody has a kidney stone, well, that happened all of a sudden. Well, no, that kidney stone was forming for quite some time inflammatory bowel disease, all of a sudden you're diagnosed with Crohn's. No, that's been smoldering for years. And I'm curious with your markers, if I remember reading the story, I think they were picked up well before anyone ever diagnosed your inflammatory bowel disease. And if you would comment about the early diagnosis and perhaps the advances with probiotics and ways to intervene early. Sure. Um, so, first of all, I am a lifetime scientist. And so, don't try this at home. I mean, um, you know, I can read, I've, I've pulled down and read 400 of the leading uh, medical research articles. Um, uh, to, I've taught myself a great deal about gastroenterology uh, and the microbes, all the stuff I didn't know anything about. Um, I've actually written a how-to guide uh, on, um, it's on my portal uh, at Cal IT2, on, on how to measure which, which markers to look for for if you're interested in your kidneys, your liver, your heart, whatever. Um, uh, and uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm, I've always lived in the future. That's, my, that's what I'm paid to do by society, is to live in the future and report back. Uh, because what I mean by that is 
like you say, what I'm doing will become automatized, just like he doesn't even know what kind of Honda he's got. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need to, right? And yet, it's being taken care of. And so it will be the same way. And partly it will be doctors, but also more and more it will be software with this planetary scale cloud computer that we have holding the data in uh, privacy protecting ways and yet anonymizing it so we can have the advantage of comparing it across populations. Now in my case, to be technical, um, I looked at uh, lactoferrin which is a marker that's in the stool. You could also look at calprotectin. What is that? Well, when the white blood cells, the killer white blood cells, start attacking you in an autoimmune disease, they sort of throw these proteins off to try to, uh, uh, what it does is it sequesters away the iron or the zinc and the manganese from the microbes that need that to grow. So it's like tear gas coming out of tanks, you know, to sort of soften up the population before they take care of them. Um, and so I was able to see that that was supposed to be less than 7 in some units, and it spiked to 900. So I looked like I look now, and I had something that was 124 times the upper limit for being healthy. And you ask me, well, how do I feel? I feel great. That doesn't have anything to do with the state of my body, actually, because you don't have, as you know, many uh, pain receptors in, in your colon. And so you can have a total battlefield in there and just look like, you know, horrible if you look in a colonoscopy and you wouldn't be aware of it. And, and, and so, yes, I was able to tell, but I did it by tracking over time these key biomarkers and noticing that 99 out of 100 things I was looking at in my blood were normal. One thing, my inflammation was chronic and went from five times CRP went from five times the upper limit to 15 times to 27 times last January. And when I tried to track that down, that's where the stool helped me locate it as being uh, actual and autoimmune flaring up of just six inches, actually, of my uh, sigmoid colon. So, um, and so, and so, in fact, my first doctor said I couldn't have IBD. Many of these autoimmune things are really hard for doctors to pick up from a symptom point of view, whereas there are these biomarkers that are specific and sensitive that actually nail it, uh, but we don't, for some reason, do surveillance, even though stool tests are infinitely easier than blood tests. Yeah. There's a microphone. I heard you use the word privacy protected, and yes. you said it really fast. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know what technology... As an attorney, I'd like to know what technology is going to make it privacy protected and ethically consumed and used. Right. Well, first of all, privacy, as Scott McNeely, the former CEO of Sun Microsystems says, is an illusion. Uh, you may think you have privacy, but if anybody really wants to find your stuff, you're, they're going to do it. Um, so, you know, it's an illusion that is useful for the people who are trying to get your data because you're sort of at ease, you think you're in good shape. So that aside, there are uh, what are, you know, the government has things called HIPAA regulations, which is where you have to have medical data under uh, an extra level of security. So for instance, at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, we have a whole computing and storage system that is HIPAA and CLIA compliant. And, and so if it goes in there, it's like in the vault. Um, 
it makes it harder to get at to do science. And so what we're seeing is people, you know, you always do this. You always think privacy is important, but come on. You, you, you know, you pick up a phone and you, die, and you order something from a catalog and you give some, somebody somewhere in the world who's at minimum wage or your credit card number and your little, you know, sacred pin on the back of the card, that's secure? Give me a break. And, and so you act in an unsecure way is what you do because you have it's a trade-off between getting things done. And so that's really what it comes down to. People are weighing the advantage of, like, I'm publishing my data even though I might have some bad consequences from insurance or something else because I'm gaining so much back from people who have similar situations who share with me their experience uh, that uh, it's a net gain. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. I hope we'll have major policy changes that enable us all to share our data with no consequences. But that's not where we are yet. And so, you know, I'm a revolutionary. I mean, that's you're, when you're in the initial guard, you know, they get your head broken a few times. So that's part of what goes with the territory. But hopefully where we're going is a place where we can all share our data about ourselves and from that learn how to keep ourselves much more healthy. Well, we have to go. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.